Welcome to episode 27 of Battle Rhythm, the Canadian podcast that tells you what you need to know on security and defense. I'm Stephanie Von Latke, and I'm celebrating today with my co-host, Steve Seidman, since this is our podcast's one-year anniversary. We have an interview with Lieutenant Colonel Charlene Harding, who shares her experience with the International Military Sports Council as head coach of the female basketball team. Then our feature interview is with Natalie Samby, an expert on the Asia-Pacific from Australian National University. But just now, Steve and I talk about our podcasting journey over the past year, military activities in Ukraine, John Bolton's book, China, and the end of Canada's campaign for a UN Security Council seat. After our interviews, Steve is back with the RNR segment. Happy anniversary, Stephanie. How you doing? I'm doing great, Steve. Happy anniversary to you as well. This has been a year since we started Battle Rhythm, and time flies when you spend one third of the year stuck in stores. Looking backwards, uh, what are your thoughts about this? Do you regret getting in, stuck in this adventure with me, or are you happy with the way it's gone? What, do you, what are your thoughts about the year gone by on, on podcasting? I don't regret it. Let me start with that. Uh, it's been a very interesting experience. For me, it's been a lot of professional development. That's the prism through which I look at this whole experience because it taught me how to be a more versatile scholar. Mm -hmm. uh, so we all have our, our niche interests in security and defense, and we tend to, or at least I tend to view things through the lens of my own research on NATO or alliance politics, but the podcast has definitely allowed me to broaden my viewpoint. And don't get me wrong, I still feel like we covered NATO topics more than most, but we did make a conscious effort to broaden out. And that's been good for me too, in terms of how I think about issues. Did you learn also something through this process or you just came at this as a, as a natural? Oh, it's not natural at all. I mean, I think that the process of podcasting is very different from blogging or tweeting or writing. It took us a while to realize that, yes, there's editing involved. And so we can be more comfortable about making mistakes and, and redoing things. I think the first few podcasts, we were so uh, nervous about it and we didn't realize uh, how much help we could get from our wonderful podcast producer, Melissa Jennings. So it's a little easier now, but I still say um too much and I'm still very self-conscious about how I sound in this thing. However, I do think that it's gotten easier in terms of being able to work with you on this, that, that we've developed our own, dare I say it, rhythm. Not only in the speaking, doing this thing right now, what we're doing, but in the preparation and, and, and in the aftermath when we, Melissa produces it and then we go through it and we suggest edits and, and all that within a very short period of time. So we've, I think we've gotten a good balance, a good rhythm going on with this, but it's still a, a challenge because I still say uh, too much and I think everybody hates the sound of their own voice. I know I'm yeah. guilty of that. And I know that you feel self-conscious about it. Although every time I listen to your intros of our podcast, I'm like, she could be great on radio. Because uh, <laughs> I, think, I think you come off really well. And I, I think you sound really great. Or maybe infomercials. Infomercials. Well, that, hey, anything to pay the bills, I got to tell you. We live not that far apart, Kingston and, and Ottawa, but we only see each other episodically in, before the before the pandemic. But this compels you to hang out with me at least every other week. So I've really enjoyed that over the course of the year. 
I've enjoyed it too. And it's uh, definitely not forcing me to do anything. It's been a very interesting journey and I've learned a lot from you as well along the way and how you think. So it, it makes us uh, better collaborators also on, on the research front, probably having that familiarity through the, the podcast. And over the weekend, I was having a conversation with friends about the podcast because I let them know it was our one year anniversary uh, since they from time to time ask me about how the podcast is going. And we got into the conversation of why academics should do podcasts in the first place or whether there's a case to be made for academics to do outreach in this way. And I thought it was a pretty difficult question to answer when, when I got to thinking about it because I don't think we should just stick to publishing in academic journals and teaching classes. We're encouraged in all sorts of ways to engage in public outreach, but it's not always easy to figure out the best way to do that, whether it's through policy reports, op-eds, media interviews, or something like this podcast. Uh, the advantage to this format is that we can cover a lot of topics in a short time, but it's also a venue where we can make references to the relevant research in international relations. So I like this ability that this format allows us to do you know, fairly broad coverage of, of issues which happen to be relevant in our two-week cycle without yeah. losing some of that analytical depth. So that's a, re a good reason for me why academics should do podcasts. That being said, I, I think there's tons of room for improvement. We've yeah. only been at this for a year and we're definitely not trained to do this at any point during our career. So it's very much been an experience of learning by doing. One yeah. thing that has improved a lot, I think, is our sound. And I'm not talking about the sound of our voice necessarily, but just the quality of the recording. When I think back to how our first episodes sounded, I, I don't think we had a good grasp for uh, how to record things so that the sound would, would come out clear. And that's especially true when we were recording interviews. Sometimes we were doing this at conferences and you don't have optimal recording conditions. And so that really came out in certain interviews that we did. So again, we learn through experience, we learn what works best. And ironically, I think that even though we want to capitalize on a lot of events that are going on and, and do interviews on the margins, the interviews that sound the clearest are the ones that we do remotely on Skype or Zoom, and we're able to record that way. Yeah, I definitely think that's one of the lessons we learned uh, that the original idea was to grab people and pull them aside at conferences. I did that last summer, exactly a year ago, pretty much, when I was in Lisbon and Paris for a couple of conferences, the European Research Group on Armed Forces and Society, and then the European Institute on Security Studies. I had interviews at both places, but getting the right environment, even with the right environment, the sound wasn't particularly good. I definitely think that we, we, we learned that to interview people by Zoom or by Skype gave us better sound. I do think that one of the reasons why academics should do podcasts is that there's lots of different ways in which people consume information, and it seems unwise to rule out particular venues. So for instance, we both participate on Twitter. We both do, you write some kind of blogging. I do a lot more blogging. We write op-ed pieces. You and I both show up on TV and radio a fair amount. And I think this is another another way. We also confer with people we know within the government. And so there's a lot of different venues or different media by which we can communicate and by which our organizations communicate, the CDSN and now your RAS network. And so it, it would seem foolish to cut off any particular path to communicate. And I think podcasts work pretty well. I think we now have a decent idea of what our audience might be. And it's magnitudes larger than the average readership of the articles where we, we get published in academic journals. So I think we get broader reach this way. 
that makes sense to to pursue this as well as other things. I, I, I don't think that every academic should have a podcast, although it does seem that lots of academics are popping out with podcasts in the past couple of years. But I do think that it is for organizations like ours, it makes sense to have that as one way in which to reach out. So yeah, I, I think that we're in, we're in good shape. Uh, and I love it when colleagues or acquaintances volunteer to be on the show. So just a shout out to people who have done so. And of course, uh, always encourage ideas both on topics and potential guests. Yes. And before we go any further, we should A, acknowledge that we're celebrating the festivity day. You, you encouraged me to buy the ingredients for mimosas. So I've been drinking a mimosa while you've been drinking a Bailey's in, infused uh, coffee. Is that right? So I, I just returned to Kingston and my, my fridge is pretty empty. So I had to settle for Bailey's in my coffee. I uh, served up some pretty nice samosas though on Father's Day on Sunday mm. with freshly squeezed OJ and everything to make it extra special. But uh, yeah, I had to settle for, for spiked coffee to celebrate and cheers to our one year anniversary. What kind of bubbly did you select? I selected Henkel, a fine uh, sparkling wine. I am not a champagne expert, but I did have my first voyage to a LCBO during the pandemic, so I, I stocked up on a variety of things. We'd like to thank Melissa Jennings, who's our podcast producer. She's been absolutely terrific, not only editing things on a short, short turnaround, but also has given us great ideas. She does all the work of, of trying to figure out our themes and gives us ideas for interviews and gives us questions for us to answer. Just been amazing. Uh, Alvi Ninte is our researcher. She's helped us uh, with our notes that we use to prepare the podcast, as well as also providing us with questions to address. Amar Sherwani is another research assistant. He's been very good at providing us with some cheat sheets so that we could get up to speed on things like the WHO. The folks at CGAI, especially Dave Perry, have been terrific in helping get our podcast out to the world. Uh, they've made it very simple for us. They also provided space for us when we needed it to interview a dozen senior military officers from across the allied countries. Jared Malthais, crucial in helping us get started. So this is definitely a whole village thing. That is, it takes a village to make a podcast. And these folks and many others have been super helpful to us. We're also very thankful to all the folks who agreed to be interviewed by us for the podcast uh, over the past year. And we appreciate folks who will be agreeing to be interviewed over the next year. So thanks to everybody for making this possible. We really owe everybody a tremendous debt. And once we can actually see each other, I, I, I promise to buy some more orange juice and some more champagne or sparkling wine and, uh, and toast them for their help in all of this. Mm -hmm. And from, from Queens, I rely quite a bit on Marianne Bouchard, who's an ME student. And so periodically, uh, she, she does some research that feeds into this podcast, which uh, I very much appreciate. And we get some of our best students coming from RMC and doing a master's, uh, our master's program at Queens, and, and she's one of those candidates. Uh, and so it's great when you have students coming in who can bring that military literacy to the table. So uh, thank you, Marianne, for, for all of your help to date. Excellent. Well, it was a good week for us. It was not a great week for Canada at the UN. What are your thoughts on this, Stephanie? If we think back to the moment when this campaign was announced, I think we can recall that most of our colleagues predicted at the time that this wouldn't work out, and, and they were right. Uh, after Trudeau became prime minister, expectations about a bigger role for Canada at the UN were raised. There is a general consensus, especially after the vote for the non-permanent seats that Canada did not meet those expectations. But at the time, Trump also got elected <laughs> shortly after. So it did force 
a huge readjustment in Canadian foreign policy priorities. So yes, it was too little too late, but I wonder if the campaign itself helps in raising the visibility of Canada within UN circles. It probably gave Canada more face time than it usually would have. So I'm thinking, I'm trying to find the silver lining sure. thinking through this <laughs> and seeing how could Canada have benefited uh, another from the process, I mean. Uh, and another good question to ask is whether the loss is symbolic or if it will actually disadvantage Canada on the world stage. Canada has not been on the council for a long time, and, and that's been pointed out in a lot of blog posts and op-ed. Last time that Canada was uh, on the council was back in 2000. So we should probably ask ourselves why. So we've heard a lot of experts calling for a foreign policy review, and it's probably not a good time to do this right this second. Maybe wait until the U.S. elections are out of the way. Uh, it might just be that Canada was just too late in terms of entering into the competition, and it might be because we have underperformed compared to Norway and Ireland. But I think that there is something to be said about Canada's foreign policy vision and maybe the lack of, of clarity behind it. So it might not have been as compelling as the current government thought it was. So revisiting, I think we'll have a lot of, of conversations about Canadian foreign policy, how it's tied to other aspects of Canada's international policy, mm. and whether we can embark on this thorough exercise of reviewing uh, Canadian foreign policy priorities, um, similar to what was done back in uh, 2005. I think this is a good uh, opportunity also to talk about the work of, of some of our colleagues. So Adam Chapnick's book called Canada at the UN Security mm. Council was, was mentioned a lot. Uh, in the Globe and Mail and, and elsewhere. So, you know, of course, his timing was terrific. His work definitely deserves mention. The work of Marina Henke as well. Uh, she published a book on how allies make side deals and, and side payments, but I think that this logic also applies in the context of the UN. Certainly, mm -hmm. in terms of the campaign, we compare Ooh. figures and, and data on how much each the candidate countries have spent and how they have tried to wow uh, other countries to get their vote. So there's definitely a lot of interesting research out there on, mm -hmm. on this particular topic. What are your thoughts? Well, my first thought was that this was not Canada's seat to lose. There was, as you suggested, that we had stiff competition from Ireland and Norway, and they, they entered the, con the contest five years before us. I was at an embassy gathering five years ago. I'm not going to name the country, but it was a country that had been successful in pursuit of a seat. And they made it clear that Canada entering in in 2015, 2016 was late. And that might by itself play against Canada that would be seem to be presumptuous, but it meant that we were far behind, that countries already had started to commit to Ireland and Norway. So it's not just that they were very virtuous countries that Ireland and Norway have good foreign policies uh, that play well. But I also think that we got hit hard over the past few years in, in a variety of ways that were sometimes Canada's fault or sometimes Canada had some responsibility, in some ways not. Canada has had a very, very pro-Israel stance, and that probably antagonizes countries in the Arab world. The two competitors that we were, we were fighting with, or not fighting with, but trying to beat in the, uh, the vote were both European countries, so it's probably hard to get European votes. Uh, Canada's stance in Africa has been vague, and maybe the most visible way we are in Africa is through mining companies, and that's not necessarily going to win lots of people affection. And if you think about it, uh, Canada has had bad relations with Saudi Arabia, so if anybody wants to follow Saudi Arabia, uh, they're not going to vote for Canada. And then, of course, as we'll get to in a few minutes, Canada's relationship with China is not very good, so if any country wants to suck up to China, they're not going to vote for us. And so Canada still got 108 votes which was 22 short of the, what they needed. So that was a lot of countries supporting us. Uh, more than half of the countries 
in the electorate essentially voting for us, just not the two thirds we needed at a time where Canada's foreign policies had bumped into a bunch of different countries. So that might matter. I do think one of the benefits of the campaign was it did provide some focus for Canadian foreign policy. Uh, last year, there was the development of the Vancouver Principles, which was an initiative that Canada developed and had a meeting in Vancouver to deal with uh, child protection and peacekeeping. 2017. And 2017, I'm sorry. For some reason, the things I'm looking at all have 2019. I think there was a, a new new guidance came out a couple years later. But that was part of this campaign that, that Canada was going to lead on this issue. And so it gave energy to that effort. But I would say that one of the complaints about the Trudeau government is that it was never had its heart in foreign policy, that it had this goal because of the campaign promise, but that it hasn't been a central focus in Canadian foreign policy, except for, as you mentioned, managing the U.S. relationship after Trump became president. And that was the right priority. But now the question is, what are Canada's parties going to be the future? And as you mentioned, there's, there's been talk of a, def, of a foreign policy review. And, and I think that might be important because I do think that Canadian foreign policy needs more focus. It needs more energy. It needs more direction. It might need more investment into global affairs, more, you know, more personnel there, not just so that way my students at Carleton can get hired and your students at, at Queens can get hired there, but there, there seems to have been a real uh, lagging of development of investment in, in foreign affairs compared to what's been going on at D&D the past few years. So maybe this will re-energize that. There's a lot of calls for a defense, re uh, for a foreign policy review. We'll see if the government decides to do that at some point, but I think that we could use a, we could use a conversation about what is Canada's role in the world where the old assumptions are no longer quite as valid. Uh, the United States is no longer as reliable as it used to be. That Russia is constantly acting the role of the troll in international relations. That China was once seen as a, a rising power, but was going to be cooperative and now is seen to be quite belligerent. And so a lot of the assumptions that we had are no longer uh, applicable. So I do think we need to rethink our foreign policy. And maybe this loss will force that to happen. But We'll see. In the meantime, I really like Samantha Powers, advice for Canada, the former U.S. ambassador to the U.N. Don't lead just for the sake of a Security Council campaign, but take that show on the road. Yeah, that's not the only place that we can focus our attention, right? The U.N. Security Council, in some ways, is not going to be a very powerful platform over the next few years because of the Chinese, the Russians, the Americans are in opposition to, are in opposition to each other, which is going to make it hard to get anything through the Security Council. There are other venues. For instance, a new story came up this week about who's gonna be the next chairman of the military community of NATO. And John Vance's name has been mentioned as a possible chairman. This would give Canada a little bit more of a voice than it otherwise has in NATO. Uh, John Vance has been one of the longest serving CDSs, so this would be a natural way for him to move on from that position. And given that he had NATO experience in Afghanistan, I think that he'd be seen by many of those around the table as a, as a reliable person to serve in that capacity. Now, of course, the government might be wary of throwing its hat in another competitive process, because if they lose that one too, then they'll get blamed for it. But I think that that's a, a different way for Canada to have a voice in the world. And I think that's one, ironically, the way that Canada has actually had a greater voice in the world over the past five years by its involvement in the, as a, a framework nation at NATO at, uh, in Latvia, by its taking on the leadership role in the NATO training mission in Iraq, by participating in the training mission in, in Ukraine. So I think there are other ways that Canada can, can make a difference in the world. It just may not be at the UN. Yeah, I definitely think that Canada has a better shot with NATO and, of course, Maybe the, the stakes seem smaller there. I'm, I'm not sure how much influence you purchase uh, with the position of uh, chairman of the military committee, but it is more visibility for Canada and certainly 
a way to signal that Canada's uh, leadership contributions in, in Latvia and in Iraq, as you mentioned, uh, are not going unnoticed. Speaking of that, we talked a little bit about Ukraine last time, or we wrote about it for a piece for policy options, which will be in the show notes. But Canada is returning back to the Ukraine mission. One of the things that is going on these days is people are starting to open up again. The D&D has been talking for the past couple of weeks about returning back to work sort of as normal. And so now they are sending a new contingent of troops to Ukraine to continue the training mission, which has been on ice since everything shut down due to COVID. Well, maybe you have more information on this, but I'm, I'm not sure the training activities are, are really resuming. I think that you're seeing some members being uh, deployed to Ukraine. 90 members are joining the 60 personnel that had stayed behind. So remember, there had been a skeleton force uh, mm-hmm. left behind during the COVID operational pause. So we're looking at 150 personnel once the 14-day quarantine is over for the newly deployed folks. So now doing the math. It's about 50 people shy of the normal troop level for this mission, which is 200. So I suppose, I don't know if the training activities will resume once all 200 are in place and once there are really no more restrictions related to COVID. But at the moment, Ukraine has about 38,000 cases with just over 1,000 deaths. So they're not out of the woods, uh, so to speak. So I wonder when the actual activities or day-to-day training activities will resume as opposed to just progressively bringing back CAF service members to Ukraine. Well, it does raise a question of what those additional 90 troops are going to do. They could be going there just to start doing the planning work to prepare for more training. But it's momentum in a direction that we haven't seen in quite some time. Yeah, that's true. And the policy options piece that we discussed during the last episode, where we talk about the implications of COVID for CAF and NATO operations is out now. So maybe we can include that in the show notes. It was beautiful over the weekend, so I'm not sure it uh, was widely read. (laughs) I thought about that when it was published on Friday. I'm like, oh, everyone's outside or relaxing in their pool over the weekend. So we probably should retweet this out uh, once the storms hit this evening in Ottawa and Kingston. Fair enough. Speaking of storms hitting, we have the increased tensions with China in the aftermath of the latest judicial process in Canada, where the Huawei executive is continuing to be held by Canada, although in house arrest. So she's actually doing just fine. We have the two Michaels who are now facing criminal charges. Uh, so Michael Korvig and, and Michael Spevor are now being charged with sp- spying, which they didn't do. And it's revealing, of course, that China's rule of law or China's judiciary system is hardly independent. But China's ramping up the threats to Canada by putting these guys on trial for crimes they did not commit. So it looks like Canadian-Chinese relations are not going to get any better anytime too soon. Yeah, they were, were charged with spying on, on Friday, which has renewed calls by former politicians and diplomats. I'm thinking of some pieces that were published by Alan Rock, Louise Arbour, and others to do whatever is necessary to secure their release. So some voices have been calling for striking a deal with China, basically, to secure uh, the release of the two Michaels. The, the prime minister's position has been really consistent on this because he wants to avoid any perception of political interference with the judicial process. Maybe that's the SNC-Lavalin affair having really uh, sort of traumatized this particular government. But I think that more and more there is debate and discussion about 
what Canada is really empowered to do in this context to secure the release of the of the people that are being detained. Yes, and and Michael Corvig's wife was in the media. Uh, Vina Najibola uh, was was pushing for them to end the extradition of Meng. But the problem here is it's not just a matter of law. It's our, the larger bargaining situation with China, which is if you give somebody who takes hostages what they want, what stops them from taking more hostages? Do we want to reward China for its belligerent stance? And so the government faces a real problem here because there's a real asymmetric situation between us and China, which is China has a much greater ability to cause pain to Canadians via trade stances, via all kinds of other means than Canada does to cause pain to China. And so there's been calls for the government to be more assertive against China, that there are a lot of critics out there who think that the government's been weak on China, that's been too submissive, too much of an appeaser. I wouldn't go that far, but I do think that trading somebody who's a target of extradition with the United States for two people who are just being picked up off the streets of China to be hostages in this relationship, I think it doesn't make sense to me to do that because it's just going to encourage the Chinese to do more of this thing. Now, of course, the Chinese might do more of this thing anyway because they're much more powerful than Canada. And the United States has been not that helpful in mitigating the, the damage that this has done to the Canadian-Chinese relationship. Do you have a, a stance on this, Stephanie? Well, Pompeo has at least explicitly mentioned that the, the two detained Canadians should be released and has really criticized uh, China more forcefully on, on this issue compared to what we've perhaps seen in the past. So I think if the United States can do some more of that, comes uh, again a little too little too late. But I think that we should, we should welcome that because it's going to definitely be hard for Canada sitting on its own to be able to secure a, a positive outcome. So as much as I, I've not been impressed by the American stance with regards to Canada's struggle with regards to its uh, two detained Canadians, at least now this latest turn is pushing the U.S. to do a little bit more. Final topic we wanted to, to cover was John Bolton's book. So you'll have new material for your R&R segment soon with, uh, <laughs> with this book, which is now available online. So I understand that the full manuscript has been leaked and you can download it online. Bolton was also interviewed last week about the book and really was unequivocal in his criticism of Trump for putting his personal and political interests ahead of the country's and just in general for being a terrible decision maker, uh, making everything about his prospects for, for re-election and having you know, we're not learning anything new here, <laughs> having a very erratic and irrational style to, to policy deliberation and, and decision making. Will you read the book? I, I think I will read the book. I want to see how Bolton actually documents specific events from Ukraine to North Korea. Uh, so I'm interested in, in that piece. And I'm also hoping that the book, more broadly speaking, could persuade more prominent Republicans to speak out against Trump more than they have done up to now. I'm just really frustrated because a lot of the stuff he says would have been really useful, let's say, four months ago during impeachment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And one of the striking things about impeachment was that several of the key witnesses were people from the National Security Council staff. You know, they, their lives were threatened. They've, you know, their careers have now been threatened. The Trump administration has held up the promotion of all the colonels in the, in the United States military right now because they wanted to hold up on Lieutenant Colonel Vidman, who was the key person who was uh, translating a bunch of the, the Ukrainian information and one of the people who spoke out during the impeachment process. And so basically, John Bolton let his people hang out to dry while he was saving his secrets for book sales. 
So I don't think John Bolton won any fans this week, even by the folks who are opposed to Trump, because they saw that this was very much too little too late, that he should have been a, a voice during the impeachment process, even though we all know that the Republicans still would have protected Trump during the impeachment. At least it would have given that process a little, a little more weight, and it would have made it clear that the folks who uh, were speaking out, the stories they had were part of a larger common story. Will I read the book? I'll probably read portions of it, the ones that are most interesting to my sort of research interests and uh, some of those issues, but I'm certainly not going to buy it. I'm going to find a way to, to get it where I don't have to actually give John Bolton any of my money because I don't think he should profit from this. Agreed. And if he was going to wait, he could have waited just a little bit longer so that this doesn't just disappear over the summer, but really uh, have a nice launch during the peak of the election campaign. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I, I don't know you've been paying attention to, but I've been seeing on Twitter is almost every day the Republicans against Trump, uh, the Lincoln Project, have been putting out one minute ads that are just devastating. I've, I'd forgotten what you know Republican attack ads look like. And now you've got the Republicans trying to attack, the, some Republicans trying to attack Trump. And they're absolutely brutal. My favorite one thus far, I think, is having a the Jurassic Park theme song played in its majesty as Trump gets on the helicopter to go to Tulsa. And on the way back, it's played uh, as he gets out of the out of the helicopter and looks really tired and upset. They play it again, but with kazoos in a sort of broken way yeah. to, to show how sad it is. So I've also seen the same scene played with uh, the theme song from Curb Your Enthusiasm and also uh, all other kinds of things. So I think that's going to be the new memeable, memeable video for the next uh, couple of weeks. Uh, we also got some questions from our audience, namely my sister. Uh, I have two sisters. One of them uh, has become a fan of the podcast. I'm not going to say that the other sister doesn't love me, but I'll suggest that she doesn't since she's not listening to the podcast. <laughs> but my sister, who has been least interested in international relations or at least least interested in politics, has become a, an avid fan. And so she's got two questions for us. And the first question is, when will the border between Canada and the United States open up? Stephanie? I don't know when it will open up. Right now, we're looking at July 21st, which is about a month away, but that could be pushed back again. Colin Robertson had a, had a piece published uh, today, and he was suggesting that we take up a region-based approach to reopening the border. This would be similar to what we've seen in uh, the EU. They have created travel bubbles, so perhaps we can consider those types of options because it's true that we have a rather long border so a one-size-fits-all model might not be the best approach and for me personally my vacation to Maine has been canceled so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> whether well, or not we extend that that uh, reopening of the border those plans are shut yeah we had a summer vacation to be with my mom in new york and that's not happening either i do think it's the what we see from the news is that the biggest outbreaks right now in the United States are actually along the southern border of the United States. And so it wouldn't be quite as problematic that the New York, New York, for instance, has mostly had its curve go downwards, although there's been a lot more fun and, and uh, people are relaxing in New York City. So we'll see if it bounces back upwards again. But New York, Maine, Washington State, uh, Seattle has mostly gotten beyond its outbreak. So you can imagine that Opening the border with the United States for car traffic might make sense, but not to have people fly in from places like Florida and Texas and Arizona and, alas, Southern California. So they might, they might want to make that kind of restriction just to have it be cars and trains and not air travel, given that, that there's too many places in the United States that are seeing big bursts of, of new outbreaks of the epidemic. So uh, that, I think, being selective makes sense. I My guess is it, we'll extend the July 
deadline a little further, but ultimately it's going to ebb at some point just because there's going to be a need for more traffic back and forth for tourism, for the start of the new school year and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. So I would guess that as the NBA starts up and the other sports start up, there'll be more pressure to normalize the, the border with the United States. But if this current outbreak doesn't get stemmed anytime too soon, then there'll be a lot of pressure on the Trudeau government to keep things closed, even as the Trump government wants to open things up. My sister's other question was, how will countries decide who gets the vaccines once they're available? Will they go to the richest countries or the most in need to the richest people or the most in need? So what's your take on that? I think it all depends on which country is going to be first across the finish line and developing this vaccine. There's going to be a lot of attention and scrutiny over how the vaccine is made available. And normally the WHO could have provided guidance on how this could be done, but the U.S. withdrawal is probably going to disrupt that coordination process. The question was specifically about immunization to protect people against COVID-19, but I would say access to vaccines is a much broader issue. We have effective vaccines against measles, polio, tetanus, etc., but millions of people in the world do not have access to those vaccines. When I think back to all of the criticism that has been launched at the WHO recently, I think that one of the areas where the WHO has done a really good and important job is in improving access to vaccines. I'm thinking of the WHO campaigns to eradicate smallpox and polio, which have been very successful. I think it's important not to lose sight of that. And again, to call on, on, on better international cooperation on that front, which has, you know, in the meantime, been undermined by all of the criticism launched at the WHO and at the peak of the crisis, as opposed to uh, maybe what we may have expected uh, in normal times, which is, you know, coming together to manage the current crisis and then after doing the postmortem or the um, after action report or the lessons learned exercise. Yeah, I think, I think the key point you had to start is the right one, which is it really depends on who gets the vaccine first. And what's most likely to happen is there's gonna be multiple vaccines. I worry about the United States getting it first because it does seem to be the case that the Trump administration is most concerned about making money off of it or having friends of the Trump administration make money off of it. And that is not good. I think if other countries get it, they're more likely to disseminate it widely. But there's probably going to be, you know, multiple vaccines. I mean, the polio vaccine has two different vaccines, or at least did have two different vaccines. So it's, it would not be uncommon or unknown of to have multiple vaccines, uh, just as we have multiple tests that have varying levels of reliability. I worry about what the United States ends up approving of as, as a vaccine because politicization of the CDC and of everything uh, these days makes things less reliable. So I worry about that. But I do think that it's, it's obviously too bad that the WHO has decided, has been the target of politicization, and that makes it harder to have them lead on this next level of, of work uh, of this vaccine. Uh, while we were talking, Fauci was apparently testifying. I don't know exactly what he had to say, but uh, we'll have to see. I don't think the vaccines are going to happen very quickly. I do think that it's going to end up being the rich countries get it before the poor countries, and it'll be hard for the poor countries to get access to it. But it might be one of these cases where some some of the more advanced countries are more willing to share it freely. I think if the Chinese get it first, they're going to be more likely to share it freely in order to win the political battles ahead, make them look like the nice guys after being partly responsible for the spread of this thing in the first place. Okay, well, we made it, Steve, <laughs> our anniversary episode. This is, this is pretty good. We also have 
two interviews today. I interviewed Lieutenant Colonel Charlene Harding, who is the coach of the Canadian CISM women's basketball team, commanding officer of the Canadian contingent at the NATO SHAPE headquarters, and the deputy Canadian national mill rep to the NATO SHAPE headquarters. And you interviewed... Natalie Semby. She is a the head of Verve, uh, a Southeast Asian think tank focused on civil military relations of the region. She has been a, a, a voice on a prominent voice on national security issues in Australia. She's an expert on Indonesia. She was going through Canada last, uh, this past January, spoke to folks at Carleton, but also spoke at uh, D&D. And so we grabbed her while she was traveling through to interview her about Southeast Asian security dynamics, something that we don't cover too much because neither you or, nor I know much about Southeast Asia. And she, she's very good at explaining those things quite clearly to those of us who don't know much about that part of the world. And in my conversation with uh, Colonel Harding is about basketball. So it's one of those uh, sort of out of the box segments where, where we talk about the importance of, of sports. So it's not so much about NATO. I don't want to mislead our, our listeners, but it's more about what sport can bring to, to your life. And in this particular case, uh, to a military career. Well, as always, it's great to talk to you, Steph. This whole podcast really is a plot for me just to spend, hang out with you more often. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm sorry that I can't share my mimosa with you. At some point, we'll be in the same room again, but probably not until the fall or later than that. Good luck with managing the boys this summer. I, I'm looking forward to a second year of podcasting. And on the second anniversary, we can celebrate in person. Yes, and I definitely want cake for a second anniversary with the Battle Rhythm logo right on top of it. Well, I've been doing a lot of baking, but if we want a logo on it, we'll probably have to reach out to Stephanie Carvin because her cakes look terrific. Mine taste pretty good. I made great apple turnovers this weekend for Father's Day, but uh, I think if you want it to look good, you'll have to, we'll have to subcontract. Have a good week, Stephanie, and I'll talk to you in two weeks. Have a good week. Greetings, everyone. My name is Lieutenant Colonel Charlene Harding. I'm originally from uh, Ontario. I've been in the military for over 20 years now, working all over Canada and around the world. And I am just currently been appointed the head coach of the Canadian uh, Armed Forces women's basketball team. Congratulations on becoming the new head coach. Uh, shall I call you Colonel or Coach Harding? <laughs> you can call me Charlene, but, uh, but either works. Perfect. You were the first among our friends and colleagues to find out about this podcast, Battle Rhythm. Can you start by telling our listeners why that is? Uh, yeah, I can actually. One of the people who works with your program uh, contacted me because she knew I was in a band. And um, our band was the uh, Kingston-based band when I was living in Kingston uh, called Tighten Up. And we had some, uh, we put out a few albums on Spotify and other other places and so she was she asked if there was a theme song or some kind of music I could uh, she could listen to to consider it for your podcast and I sent her some of our favorites and she chose uh, the one that you're currently using. It's fantastic it puts me in a good mood every time I listen to it I can't thank you enough it's the gift that keeps on giving as I was telling you uh, by email so thank you I'm so grateful for that. No problem. Uh, we're recording this interview on, on Zoom, uh, like most of what we do right now. Many of us are still confined to our homes and social distancing. 
So I thought given your role as coach, I would ask, do you have any tips for keeping fit right now? Yeah, currently we're trying to keep, obviously the, the teammates, or the, the ladies in the program on the team fit by giving them um, goals. So I, I always find that if you have a goals-based fitness routine, as in trying to get your run to a certain time or a certain route under a certain time, um, having a pedometer or some kind of tracker and, and tracking your progress for weight, strength training, whatever. One day you do 10 push-ups, the next day you can do 11. Mm -hmm. I find that that's a good motivator for people to keep fit. Obviously, the weather is getting better around most of the world right now. So getting outside and doing it will help as well. It just It will help you stay more motivated. Unfortunately, usually you would say do it with friends. Right now, you could do it virtually with friends, or if you have those two-meter um, distancing, even going for a two-meter distance walk with somebody or run, it will help with the motivation to, to make sure you stay fit in these hard times. Yeah, thank you. I've, I've just uh, noticed in the park right next to where I live in Kingston, they've uh, reopened the basketball court, but it seems challenging even to play basketball when all of us need to touch the ball. So. I think uh, that will remain prudent for, for now and, and follow your advice, maybe running and getting outside, but keeping that social distance. It is tempting to go back to the skate parks and the basketball courts and other things right now, but uh, especially as, as, you know, when we don't know where this is going or how long it's going to last, if we can stay prudent as long as possible, it's just the best advice. So we're recording this on May 27th, and we have an episode of Battle Rhythm airing today called Leading with Compassion. What has sport taught you about leadership over the years, both as a player and as a coach? It's a really, I mean, it's a really good question because I think I was accepted into the officer corps of the military due to the fact that I was an athlete first, and I was, you know, a team captain and a coach before I joined the military. And it really taught me the, the importance of teamwork, leading by example, listening to what you're told to do. And doing it, even, I mean, unless it's unless it's illegal, as opposed to mm -hmm. arguing the point, because usually the person telling you what to do knows what they're talking about. And so, from a leadership perspective, being someone who was led and then actually now leading people, both on the court and in the you know in the office or in the battlefield, wherever I may be, it's come in very handy being an athlete. It's really shown me things about resilience. You know, putting a stiff upper lip, all those different things that you you do in sports, you actually need to do in the military as well. The military is huge on teamwork. And if you don't have somebody in front who you can trust, uh, rely upon, and actually respect, then you've lost the war. Sorry to be cliche. No, it's it's not cliche at all. I think it's it's very valuable. And I think that it's interesting because you must see things differently a little bit from your time as a player and now as a head coach. But I'm sure those types of lessons kind of stay steady through it all. They do. As you're a player, you learn what you like and what you don't like from coaches, and then you actually apply that to your leadership style when you are coaching. So some coaches yell and scream all the time on the court. Some are more sympathetic. Some are too sympathetic. And you can take what you want from, from those pieces and apply it to your own personal style to make sure that you know, you're, you're happy to be coaching the way you are coaching. So you're not just yelling because you've heard people yell before, but you know, you're not just uh, letting everyone do what they want to do because then that won't help the team either. That's very interesting. How do you think your team would describe your coaching style? I'm stern in the sense that I'm a, um, personally, as a player, I'm, I'm a hard worker and I'm very dedicated. And I'm you know, one of those people who try to lead by example. So if, the, if you have to get a certain level in or a certain you know certain time on your run or whatever it is and I'm trying to achieve that or more and so players have seen that when they've played with me and as a coach obviously I can't keep up with them at this age but I try as much as possible to emulate that so that they understand that it's 
it's not just a game. I mean, it's a game, but it's not a joke. Mm -hmm. Having said that, I'm very approachable and I like to laugh. I like to make jokes and I like to hear jokes. And so it's not, uh, I, I want people to have fun on the court. I want people to want to be there and uh, working hard is part of wanting to be there. So if they're working hard, you'll find out that people are actually having more fun. And that applies to the workforce as well. You know, your job may be really hard, but if you're enjoying it because you're working hard, you're doing well, it just makes that it much more, you know, it makes you want to go to work more every day. Absolutely. Let me ask you about uh, the women's basketball program you're coaching. It's part of an organization called Conseil International du Sport Militaire, or CISM, if we just read out the acronym. And it's not just a sports program, but also an international military network of sorts. So I'm curious, do the relationships built on the court translate into the professional realm? Do you sometimes run into people from other countries that you've met on the court? Yeah, this is, uh, it, this is absolutely true. I've literally been in Iraq on a mission and run into somebody who was a coach on another soccer team uh, from back when I played SISM soccer. And we stopped and chatted for a little bit. And we're in the middle of, you know, nowhere in Iraq. And we recognize each other from, from tournaments or previous um, exposures to each other. So it happened to me also when I was in Haiti. I was, I was deployed to Haiti and I was working there. And somebody who was also part of the battle, the task force that I was with from Chile recognized me. So it, it's a way to bring the world together. CISM's motto is friendship through sport. And so it's a way to make us not adversaries, but teammates internationally. So there's a sisterhood of the uniform. Yeah. And, and brotherhood. I mean, it's um, because you have for World Games, which happen once every four years, you have every sport imaginable all together taekwondo, soccer, basketball, sailing, like you name it. Uh, you just get to meet so many wonderful people. Everyone fit, everyone committed to their sport. Most other countries, there's a lot of Olympians on the team or a lot of professionals. And so it's, uh, it's awe-inspiring. And then lo and behold, you end up downtown Ottawa and you see someone walking down the street who you met, you know, four years before in India or somewhere else. So yeah, it's, it's a good brotherhood, sisterhood. So, so let's talk about that, the, the world military games. I assume that the entire training and tournament schedule in general has been affected by COVID-19. So how are you planning for the months ahead when training is being disrupted in this manner and when events are being canceled or postponed? It makes it very challenging for sure. We do have a training regime. So I was just hired on as a new head coach and I'm, I'm putting out a training regime so that the, the team can do their, their fitness goals. So a fitness training program we have for them you know, nutrition program, shooting program, dribbling program, that they can be motivated to do on their own, but we'll be checking in with each other to make sure that we're keeping on track. And it's going to climb and build to hopefully the end of the year when, fingers crossed, COVID will not restrict people from getting together again. Funding will be available despite everything going on, and we'll be able to get back into the gym. So right now, there's a sort of a six-month outlook with our fingers crossed that we'll be able to to meet up again. And then if it doesn't happen, then we'll just go back to the drawing board and, and re, uh, reprogram something so that we can at least keep the momentum going, keep motivated, keep urging each other on, and then the hopes that we can get together on a court Monday soon. I suppose that the most important thing right now is just to stay connected as a team, even if you can't meet up for, for practice or for training, you just want to stay engaged. Yeah, exactly. We just want to make sure that we stay um, together, we stay motivated. It's easy to fall off the it's not off the wagon, but it's easy to fall off the bus when you're when there's nothing in sight. So um, there is something in sight for us. We don't know when it's going to happen, but it's there. And so it's just a matter of mental toughness, just just hanging in there until we can all get together again. Speaking of all of this uncertainty, 
I'm a professor at Queens, as you know, and right now the class of 2020 will be having an online convocation for now. And I know that your alma mater is Queens. So can I ask you if you have any advice for the class of 2020? I do. It's a rough time to, to be graduating and I really empathize with, with everybody there. Just keep in mind for the convocation as wonderful as it is, you know, it's the it's one day, but you still have the rest of your life ahead of you. You've you've managed to graduate, which is the biggest accomplishment. You should be very proud of yourselves, and you have a hopefully you have a massive future ahead of you. You know, I missed my convocation because I was at basic training and I wasn't able to go back. You know, and I, and I regretted it at the time and I was really sad. But 20 years later, look where I am. So life still goes on. I wish you all the best of luck, and hopefully you can find some way to celebrate virtually. Well, I know many Queen students will be listening to this, so so thank you for for the words of advice. And I know for for us profs, uh, we're recording little messages so that they can at least see us virtually as they celebrate this rite of passage uh, remotely. And hopefully, when the fall comes, we can have a, a real convocation and everyone can can meet up again. But uh, much like everything else, COVID nineteen is is disrupting these these celebrations. To end on a uh, lighter note, and and this is me asking you for advice, but can I ask you how you are balancing a really challenging? career in your day-to-day with this really monumental uh, commitment to a basketball team? Yeah, it does take a lot of support. I mean, time management and all those other things, but it does take a lot of support from my family. Um, luckily, I'm, you know, my, my husband and kids are uh, huge basketball fans and huge supporters. And I have a, a great staff, a great system staff that are all involved with, the, with managing with me. So, you know, I have my other, the two other coaches that I work with. Uh, there's our manager that sort of keeps us all in line and we have fitness trainers and, and uh, physical trainers. So between all of us, we're trying to, you know, we're, we're trying to manage this as best we can. We have a, a patron who's, um, he's sort of in charge of full program for us. And so he's always going to bat for us to get us uh, the next thing that we need. Uh, and he's been very motivating and very inspiring as well. And so it's not easy, but it's definitely great to have a team that I can work with to help manage everything and then the same thing obviously in my day job I have a great team here that we we you know we all work together to try and uh, to at, at this point it's almost crisis management because going through COVID-19 has been uh, it's been something no one's ever done before it's been absolutely astronomical to try and keep up with personnel management and helping people as best we can but um, we're all in the same boat so everyone's very understanding um, so it's been it's been good that way and then you know I just try to uh, de-stress as much as I can. I have my band, a uh, new band here called Potosisi. We're not recording yet, but uh, wait for it. And um, <laughs> yeah, and then you just, uh, and I work out. <laughs> so amongst all those things, it's, it's challenging, but it's definitely rewarding and I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. Coach Colonel Harding, Charlene, thank you very much for taking the time to be on Battle Rhythm today. Stay safe and thank you once again to tighten up for that sweet, sweet intro music on our show. Thank you, Stephanie. Today we were talking with Natalie Sambi, who is a defense expert and, and several mil expert from Southeast Asia. Uh, she has a delightful South uh, Australian accent, 
and she's an expert on Indonesia, and she's in town to talk about Indonesia. So we thought we'd bring her in and talk to her about all kinds of things. So first, you created Verve. Can you tell us a little bit about Verve besides the cool name? Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. My first time in Ottawa. Lots of snow out here, so <laughs> something different for an Aussie. Verve is an independent research collective, and it is our goal to help people understand the really nuanced relationships between militaries and societies in Southeast Asia. So what we bring to the table is knowledge that's been gained from having lived in the region, from speaking the languages, having deep personal networks. And it's our aim to share that knowledge for the purposes of understanding how we can work with the societies and the militaries, um, you know, for either for the purposes of scholarly you know, research or either for policy as well. Wow. Excellent. And so your own personal research interests? Squarely this, the Indonesian military. Mm -hmm. But I am interested in, in mostly what goes on in Indonesia. Um, and in Southeast Asia as well. I was born in Perth in Western Australia and I spent a lot of my childhood in that region, so I have a personal interest in it as well. But for Australia, it's the area directly to our north. Mm -hmm. And so for us, it's a direct gateway into understanding the rest of the Indo-Pacific. Excellent. So what are the biggest challenges facing Indonesia these days? Oh my gosh, um, lots to be honest. I mean, it's a country of 260 million people. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, you know, roughly a little bit less than 10 times the population of Canada spread across what is also an archipelago of 17,000 islands. You know, and as we were talking about earlier, there are natural disasters uh, that happen in the country, but it's also a, a newly minted democracy that's trying to hold together a national identity of different peoples of ethnic, religious, linguistic backgrounds. And uh, the president is currently trying to provide infrastructure upgrades mm -hmm. in order to meet the needs of these people and emerging middle class on one hand, but also trying to raise anywhere between 10 to 14% of the population. It's about 26 at least million people mm -hmm. out of poverty. And some of the challenges include how do you connect all of those islands together? How do you reduce the logistics costs? How do you move people efficiently? How do you get food security for all these people, provide base level electricity, education, healthcare, mm -hmm. so on and so forth. So as a country, domestically, Indonesia has a lot going on. And we haven't even started scratching the surface about, you know, what's going on around its maritime on environment and, and beyond as well. From my standpoint, I, I study civil relations and so uh, and our audience uh, cares about these kinds of things. And, and so one of the interesting things about Indonesia is it's a new democracy. And every democracy, when it makes that transition, there's some kind of agreement between the military and the civilians about the military stepping aside. But then that might also mean giving the military complete autonomy so that way they don't have reasons to step back in. Is that the kind of deal that was made there? Or is there more oversight over the over the Indonesian military because of past human rights abuses? Look, I think in order to be able to give some understanding to listeners about the situation with the Indonesian military, we have to go a little bit back in the history and understand that not only did it play this foundational role in this sort of founding, the founding myth of the country, mm -hmm. But actually from the 60s on, but they actually had a doctrine of dual function. Mm -hmm. And what that meant is that not only did it play a security role, but it was very much entrenched and had a lot of say in politics, economics, mm -hmm. society, media. Mm -hmm. So there's a great deal of socialization and nostalgia and ties between the people in the military which doesn't really happen in countries like Canada and Australia. So yes, while the military towards the end of, of the authoritarian rule was falling out of reputation with the people, there were gross human rights abuses, and it was seen to have mismanaged the country in particular with corruption. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, its territorial command system, this is an unusual feature of the Indonesian mm -hmm. military that it's present, particularly the army, throughout the archipelago. And that feature was not reformed. So while the military stepped back officially from politics, and it 
gave mm -hmm. up all of its mandatory seats and there were other reforms, the reform process was not quite complete. Mm -hmm. So nominally it was meant to give up a lot of its business interests and therefore its independence and budget raising, mm -hmm. but things like the territorial command and, and that sort of reform process was mm -hmm. not quite complete. So while the Indonesian military today has many of the functions as what we might consider a professional military, mm -hmm. and it's starting to look more externally focused, it is still very much an internally focused security force. Mm. And the use of the military in that domestic sense, I think, further reinforces this complicated presence and relationship that this military has in Indonesian society and also politics. Well, this reminds me of as I was in Brazil a couple of years ago, mm. and one of the people I was interviewing was a member of the Defense Committee who was a communist and had been tortured under the previous military regime. And she was the biggest fan of the military, and that was part because she's from a a rural part of Brazil where the only Brazilian institution that shows up is the military because they're the ones who deliver the mail and provide the medical stuff and all the other kind of infrastructure. So it, it gives them the military a much more complex role in society as, as opposed to just being people in that base over there that you never see. Absolutely. So it sounds like Indonesia is a little bit like that. Yeah, and I'm nodding profusely right now. I mean, mm. it's interesting, the military role in Indonesia is almost the same time span as the Brazilian military. And a lot of the Indonesian military's early role has been about this mm. idea or mythology, I might say, of quashing communists. Um, but that was something that they kept up for for a long, long time. And you're right, sometimes you can't generalize about how Indonesian society feels about the military. Mm -hmm. Certainly elites may have one view. NGO um, workers, activists, journalists have a very strong view based on some very important experiences that they've had. And then, but for other people out in rural areas where the military, particularly in Indonesia, is helping to build classrooms, to build bridges, providing rice, you know, and um, helping other with other sorts of basic needs, there's a very different impression, very different relationship. And as we were saying earlier with natural disasters, the military has often been the first responder. And so again, there's a sense that, yeah, the military is there for us. So you mentioned the role of the Indonesian military being anti-communist. Mm -hmm. So does that have legacies today about sort of the military's attitude towards China? Oh, well, interestingly enough, the legacies part is an important piece of their identity. Mm -hmm. You know, because again, this idea that they crushed the communists in 65, 66, gave them a sense of self-legitimized guardian of the nation type role. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing is, even though there's been the end of the Cold War and a sort of, you know, everything has kind of moved on. Many of these narratives persist. Mm -hmm. Even today, if I ask some of the retired generals, you know, do you, do you feel that there might be a sense of communist threat in the country? The response I get is a very um, unsure, well, yeah, it's possible. It's not an outright no. Mm -hmm. And so that's very much about an internal narrative, though. And it's about ensuring that in some instances that the military is still there playing that frontline role in terms of making sure there's nothing that's about to cause the archipelago to, mm -hmm. to separate. And interestingly enough, that narrative is not directed externally. Okay. I mean, there is always a complicated relationship between Indonesia and its citizens of Chinese heritage. Even if these citizens have been Indonesians for generations, mm -hmm. there is often a difficult relationship because of suspicions of the roles that they have played domestically or you know, perceptions of how they've been tied up with corruption in businesses. And there's been a lot of racism with certain key political figures, former governor of Jakarta, for instance. There is also a an anxiety about the influx of Chinese workers as part of Belt and Road projects. But having said that, the anti-communist narrative is not externally focused as much as it is internally focused. And you can see that today there's been a banning of books 
lectures and symbols of Marxism. So you can't walk around with t-shirts with a sickle and a hammer. We can have a Che Guevara shirt on. Probably not a good idea. <laughs> Probably not as, as hipster as some Jakartas can be. That's, there's a line there, I think. Um, but we will see if that changes generations from now. Mm -hmm. But the important thing to know is that military, retired military generals of a generation for whom this anti-communist narrative and identity played an important part are around the president. Mm -hmm. They are in security and strategic thinking circles and they are—they do have a bearing, they do have an influence on some of the thinking. And so I guess one of the things that I'm curious about is Indonesia's place in the world because it is a has a large population. It's the world's largest Islam country, I yes, think, Yes, right? yep. it will be surpassed by India in coming decades, yes. interestingly enough. Of course, but the Indians are currently these days doing their best to repress their, their Muslims. So that so in terms of a country led by Muslims, it's it's one of the largest. It's it's economy while having lots of people in poverty is still a very large, vibrant economy. And so people looked at Indonesia as a, playing a powerful role, but it's sort of an interesting spot because it is between Australia and China. And just as we've observed debates within Australia, about which side to take in as the United States declines and China rises. I'm curious as to what the Indonesian debate is about what it should do at this time of transition. I think you highlighted an important point about Indonesia's geostrategic position in the region. Yeah, it's between Australia and China, but it's also between two oceans. And mm -hmm. if you look on, a, on the map, you see where all the trading routes are and you see how vulnerable in some ways Indonesia is from the the porosity, I suppose, of those sea lines and things like that. And it's sort of, you know, between East and West and, and North and South. It's a critical country. It's a larger state in Southeast Asia. So it plays a key role in regional infrastructure like ASEAN or ASEAN mm -hmm. Regional Forum. But at the same time, you said, like, it's this emerging potential power, mm -hmm. you know, that's there alongside as India and China are rising. It's also a potential part of Japan, the United States. So there is a role for it to play in terms of leadership. And I would advocate it should play a more mm. a more active role. But under the current administration, because so much of the agenda is domestically focused, which I think in some ways is correct, you can't really play too much of a role outside if you don't get your own house in order. I can understand the logic in that. But having emphasized the maritime domain time and time again in a lot of the foreign policy um, documents and statements, Indonesia has almost sort of invited the outside world to think of itself as this emerging maritime player as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. And by virtue of the fact that President Jokowi has a really good relationship with Prime Minister Modi. Mm -hmm. And Indonesia and India have released a shared vision mm -hmm. for the Indo-Pacific, of which a maritime component plays a large part. The ASEAN outlook on the Indo-Pacific has a very large maritime component that was pushed by Indonesia. Indonesia has invited itself into this. Now, we will see whether Indonesia can actually play this role mm. because you have to say, okay, if you want to be a leader, you have to have you know, thoughts and, and visions that need to actually be backed up by action. So what role is Indonesia going to be playing in terms of Indo-Pacific governance? What role can Indonesian, Indonesia play in a practical sense in terms of naval cooperation? That means it needs to get its navy up to scratch. And what can Indonesia do in terms of promoting cooperation in the maritime domain? That means its coast guard mm -hmm. actually needs greater attention as well. Mm -hmm. And as you and I have been alluding to earlier, these militaries you know, in countries like Brazil and Indonesia tend to be pretty army dominant. Mm -hmm. So one of the big questions for Indonesia is for a army dominant armed forces, what is going to happen to its maritime defense. Mm -hmm. you know? And so there are plans to get those elements bolstered, mm -hmm. but that's still a work in progress. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to talk, as you talk about how Indonesia has lots of promises but may not be backing up in terms of capacity and action. And you're sitting in Canada, and that's sort of the debate in Canada too, which is that Trudeau talks a good game about being a world power, you know, playing a role in all these things. People always ask, well, what are you doing about it? We want a UN Security Council seat, but 
what are you going to do with it? What have we done to earn it? And when it comes to the Asia Pacific, Canada has been thinking about the past 20 years that it is actually a Pacific country. It has two coasts, and so it should be looking to, to Asia as well as looking to Europe. But the challenge is that when Canada looks to Europe, it knows what the playbook is. It, it belongs in NATO. It knows what it's supposed to do in NATO. There's these other institutions. And so there's sort of a standard way of behaving, and we have expertise in that. And so relations with Europe are pretty smooth because we know what to expect, and, and we know how to play the various European games. And I think one of the challenges for Canada in Asia, well, there's a couple challenges. One is the size problem, which is Canada is only a country of 35, 37 million people. It's only a country that if, if they get all the frigates funded, we'll have 15 frigates, which is nothing in, in, in the Pacific. It's a, it has four submarines, which is nothing in the Pacific. Uh, so in terms of capacity, you know, standard measures of military capacity, Canada doesn't have much. And in terms of the size of its economy, is dwarfed by by a lot of the countries in terms of population. And so Canadians wonder about what can Canada do in the region. And I'm curious as to whether folks in the region think about Canada as being relevant at all or whether it could play a role in the region. It's really interesting at the moment because the Indo-Pacific is still this emerging strategic construct. And there hasn't been a lot of thought. There's been some, but not a lot of development in terms of what is the institutional architecture going to look like? What are the norms of behavior like? And there are some proposals about making sure ASEAN remains, you know, ASEAN centrality is paramount, which means all of the sort of you know, treaty of empty incorporation, mm. ideas of interference, and, and or ASEAN regional form as being the primary sort of institution. But that's still an emerging picture. What we're still trying to think about is what's common to all the countries in the Indo-Pacific, mm-hmm. and how does that then allow us to think about what role partners have. So things like international law mm-hmm. and supporting the United Nations um, Convention of the Law of the Sea are incredibly important to countries like Indonesia. And there are certainly those kinds of instruments where countries like Canada can play a part. But that wouldn't be very neutral, would it? In what sense? In the sense that China is not as big a fan of the law of the sea and in, in terms of the boundary disputes between uh, China and everybody else whose territory seems to cross over the nine-dash line. Certainly. I mean, there are times where China will respect international law and there are times when China will not. Um, certainly if it's pushing ideas like traditional historic, uh, sorry, historic um, fishing grounds and things like the recent spat with Indonesia is a prime example of that. But this is where I suppose it depends on where you fall in the debate of can countries in the region be made to adhere to norms and international law or does it take more than that? And I think there are multiple lines of operation that need to happen, but certainly strengthening norms, setting standards of behaviour, building up cooperation, building up familiarity, they're all things that you have to do alongside other kinds of measures, you know, whether those measures are more coercive or not. Um, it's a difficult thing to say. I mean, the last thing anybody wants to do is to create conflict in the region, but it seems to me a lot of the contra- conflict is falling below a particular threshold. Mm-hmm. So if there's a role for Canada to play in terms of naval cooperation, Coast Guard cooperation, mm-hmm. give it its limited assets, because it's not easy, obviously, for Canadian assets to get all the way down mm-hmm. to Southeast Asia, that could be something um, where more cooperation can happen or to look at something that Canada has done in the past really, really well, peacekeeping, Mm -hmm. for instance, and looking where that might dovetail well with partner nations like Indonesia, which under the previous administration was looking to boost peacekeeping as well. And I guess the question is, is there any peacekeeping to be done in Southeast Asia these days or is it mostly safari and elsewhere? So a lot of Indonesian troops end up going to other theaters. So there's mm. lots in Lebanon, there are parts in, in different parts of Africa. And that's you know a useful process for the Indonesian military. Besides the fact for some countries it becomes uh, a way for them to be able to gain funds for the military mm-hmm. and, and for individuals. But it is an important 
point of socialization for officers as well. Mm -hmm. um, so that could be another potential area. That means that Canada has to get more serious about its own peacekeeping game. <laughs> yep, that's true. That's true. Uh, which has been a challenge. But I'm curious as to what your current research agenda is and what you're going to be researching in, in the next couple of years. Well, at this point in time, uh, for me, in within the team, I mean, I'm going to continue thinking about the Indonesian military. Mm -hmm. I'm really interested in perceptions and beliefs and the mm -hmm. relationship with society. Maybe parts of the picture that we don't understand so much. Like you were saying earlier, mm -hmm. how do different groups of people mm -hmm. in Indonesia think about the military and what mm -hmm. kind of impact does it have? Um, we have one research report that we're drafting at the moment on relations between um, Indonesia and South Pacific. I'm looking at defense cooperation there, and my other colleagues are looking at other issues in the Philippines. Mm -hmm. One of my colleagues is looking at Marawi, another one is looking at uh, women and security, another colleague of mine working in Sweden is looking at military innovation. So amongst us in the mm -hmm. team, we're all interested in different things, mm -hmm. but we're all interested in the, that central idea, that central theme of the roles of militaries and societies. Mm -hmm. I guess one of the classic submill questions is, are, would you be concerned about the military coming back into power in Indonesia, or do you think that's sort of in the, back, in the past and not really a serious issue. I would say issue. the military's already in power in Indonesia. And <laughs> let me qualify that. That's a very loose and yes. potentially reckless statement. Yes, but it depends who you say who the military is. Okay. So if you say people who have been in uniform have an influential role to play mm. around centers of power in Indonesia, mm. the answer is an unequivocal yes. Mm. And you can see that in politics, not just with the people that Jokowi surround himself with. So mm. one can argue, like I said earlier, the infusion of ideas mm and policy thinking has mm. come from people who have lived under that generation of the new order in Indonesia, mm. you know, who've been in army uniform, who have been in theatres like East Timor, which was then, mm. you know, now an independent state. So they have particular ideas about sovereignty, they have particular mm. ideas about international influence. And at the same time, mm. if you look at the idea of retired generals and businesses or commissions and mm. other kinds of nodes of power in Indonesia, that's a thing too. And then you look at influence and power in terms of social relations, mm -hmm. you know, like I said earlier with the Indonesia's military's pervasive presence throughout the archipelago, that is another form of power and influence. It depends, you know, how you cut this up, whether you see the, what kind of influence does this mm -hmm. have? I think that's what we're also interested in is what is what are the implications sure. of having people who have been in uniform or out of uniform on the trajectory of Indonesia's development, mm -hmm. either in a political sense, and what does that mean for its people? Mm -hmm. And as we said earlier, it's complicated. It can be good, you know, in some cases, but it can be bad if people are interested in just sort of enriching and consolidating their own political power and position. Mm -hmm. you know. Well, I guess from the principle, sort of the standard uh, civ mill question would be, are there things that the civilians might want the military to do and the military says no? Uh, or is there a situation where the civilians never ask the military to do difficult things because they already are on the military's page? Because one of the classic problems of understanding the civil mill crisis is there might be countries that never have a civil mill crisis that's apparent because the civilians are just doing whatever the military wants. And so I'm sort of curious on the spectrum of are, are there proposals such as you suggested that more money be spent on the Navy and maritime resources at the expense of the Army? And is that being resisted by the military because the military is dominated by the Army, which means that Indonesia is poorly prepared for whatever the threats are in the future? To give you a, a parallel example from the region, one of the things that surprised me when I was doing research in Japan was to find out that 50% of the defense budget in Japan goes to the army, which given the structure of the situation is completely irrational given the, the skies of, of Japan are violated on average twice a day so that they have to scramble planes, that they obviously need to have more Navy capability, they need to have more anti, uh, ballistic missile capability to, to destroy uh, the, the North Korean missiles. It seems that spending half your money on the army is foolish. 
and yet it happens because nobody seems to be involved in Japan's civil military relations besides the military. And so I'm curious in the, in the Indonesian case if that's also the case where the army dominates and so it's not changing its budget to deal with the basic realities that the threats are seaborne and airborne and not really uh, involve land too much. I mean, yes, absolutely. It depends what, how the threat picture is defined. The 2015 Indonesian Defense White Paper mm -hmm. names terrorism, separatism, and other kinds of internal threats as the main mm -hmm. threats to the country. And you know, maritime issues are important, you know, and there's a lot of rhetoric around that. But as I said earlier, a lot of the thinking, you know, in, in key centers of, of influence and, and strategic power are about land-focused issues. They are about, you know, domestic security, you know, and you can see this in the recent issue that happened around the Natuna Islands, you know, which are a bunch of small islands near Sumatra and near Singapore. There's a lot of rich oil and gas sort of reserves around those islands as well. But there is this sort of jut up in what is considered to be, what China considers to be its nine-dash line, right? Mm -hmm. The EEZ of Indonesia overlaps this nine-dash line. Very, very convenient, I know. Mm. But what happened on December 11 is a number of Chinese vessels, Coast Guard and Maritime Surveillers, plus fishing vessels, entered Indonesia's EEZ. Mm -hmm. They stayed there until the 11th of January. And for Indonesia, that's quite you know, quite a concerning development, mm -hmm. you know, that not only did they deploy their Coast Guard and they had warned the Chinese vessel to go away, they didn't leave. Mm -hmm. And short of using more coercive measures, one sort of asks the question, what are they going to do? And there's no way that the Indonesian Coast Guard nor Navy are in a position to confront Chinese vessels. Mm -hmm. And yes, they can, you know, they built up troops, they sent 600 troops over there, they sent two corvettes, they put Boeing 747 maritime surveillance. Mm -hmm. But is that enough? You know, when you've got a white paper and a bunch of you know retired generals saying you know it's all land based, it's all mm. internally, and you've got a budget that reflects in professional um, development, personnel professionalization of the army is allocated more than the size of the the navy and air force combined. Mm. All of these little elements, mm -hmm. they're not to say that A plus B equals C, but they're all elements that end which lead Indonesia to being the situation that it is. Mm. That it may need and want some of those naval and air force upgrades to happen. It's just a complicated picture of how some of those budgetary elements are allocated and where the emphasis is. Now, obviously, issues like this Natuna Island um, crisis were central in a lot of the Indonesian media. Mm -hmm. So I'd be interested to see at what pressure is there from the bottom up going to be at the policy level that might instigate some of these changes. Because people are aware that Indonesia has a vulnerable maritime domain. Mm. They know that illegal fishing from countries like Vietnam, Thailand, and China is a problem for the country. Now they're going to start asking, hopefully, in a more concerted effort, mm -hmm. what is the president going to do about it? Well, this is really interesting. Thank you very much, Natalie, for joining us on Battle Rhythm. And we look forward to hearing more from Verve in the future. Thank you so much, Steve. On today's r and segment where we talk about books and movies and TV shows to rest and relax during this difficult time, I've got a very unrelaxing book to recommend and then two good TV shows. The unrelaxing book is Reconstructing Iraq. It's Gordon Rudd's book about the effort to change the regime of Iraq and how badly it went. Uh, I'm currently reading it for my own research, but I think it would benefit other folks to read it to see how things really went awry in the United States bureaucracy and in the Trump and the Bush administration. Are there lessons to be learned from this? I hope so, as I'm trying to develop some research based on it. In terms of more fun things, uh, two things come to mind, two TV shows come to mind. First is iZombie. Why iZombie? Well, iZombie is a zombie 
TV show, but the idea of it is that there's a woman who got exposed to the zombie virus in Seattle. And over the course of the four years of the show, there's a development of a small community that becomes essentially much of Seattle that becomes autonomous essentially from the rest of the United States. And when I look at what's going on in Seattle these days where there's the Capitol Hill occupation protest or whatever CHOP stands for, whatever CHAZ stood for before, where you have this slightly autonomous piece of Seattle, I couldn't help but think of iZombie. So that's the first one. Uh, the basic idea is that this woman who's a doctor gets infected and she needs to eat brains, so she becomes a coroner, so that way she can eat brains without killing people. And then she discovers that when she eats a brain, she learns about how, uh, some of the memories and takes on the personalities of the brain she's eating, so that leads to both comedy, because the personalities are often very amusing, and mysteries, because she learns what killed these people, and often it is murder. So I recommend iZombie because it's delightful and because it reminds me of what's going on in Seattle these days. And I'm also watching with my wife the show The Great, which is about Catherine the Great. And it is a funny, mostly funny, but also sometimes serious discussion or presentation of Catherine the Great in Russia, which is not entirely historically accurate. In fact, it's probably not at all historically accurate. But it's very interesting about Catherine trying to maneuver herself into becoming the empress Actually, she's already the empress, becoming the sole ruler of Russia. And so it's quite entertaining. It's an Amazon Prime TV show, and I recommend it highly. It has a nice mixture of both drama and comedy. So those are my recommendations for this week. Be well, wash your hands, stay six feet apart, wear a mask, and be well. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments. And so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS or email them to cdsn.rcds.outlook.com. Thank you.